The five men arrested at 2.30am had been dressed in business suits and had all worn Playtex rubber surgical gloves. Police had seized a walkie-talkie, 40 rolls of unexposed film, two 35mm cameras, lockpicks, pen-sized tear gas guns and bugging devices that apparently were capable of picking up both telephone and room conversations. One of the men had $814, one $800, one $215, one $234, one $230, Lewis had dictated. Most of it was in $100 bills, in sequence. They seemed to know their way around. At least one of them must have been familiar with the layout. They had rooms on the second and third floors of the hotel. The men ate lobster in the restaurant there, all at the same table that night. One wore a suit bought in Rayleigh's. Somebody got a look at the breast pocket. Woodward learned from Lewis that the suspects were going to appear in court that afternoon for a preliminary hearing. He decided to go. Woodward had been to the courthouse before. The hearing procedure was an institutionalised fixture of the local court's turnstile system of justice. A quick appearance before a judge who set bond for accused pimps, prostitutes, muggers, and, on this day, the five men who had been arrested at the Watergate. Welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a guy who's on Australian radio, and occasionally TV, we sometimes swap roles on there. He's got words absolutely everywhere um, in this country and sometimes in others. Uh, SBS, we are flix.com.au alumni. He was the single engine behind filming for many, many years. Um, and you can find his stuff in the Metro. You can find his stuff for app, Actor. You can find his stuff pretty much everywhere. Um, he is a one heat minute crew member from way back and... Uh, a person who is has one of the funnest Facebook pages because he's a deeply politically engaged person and also is a maniac for film. And so what he has managed to foster is a bunch of film obsessives who also like to really argue like any other Facebook group fan page for some <laughs> kind of political ideal. Um, and so it's with my great pleasure that I welcome him to all the President's Minutes. Travis Johnson, welcome to the show, mate. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. You are welcome. Thank you for coming to be a part of this show. And people would have noticed in the format that I'm bouncing between journos and film writers and mm. film critic critical minds you yourself are bouncing between those two poles right yeah now. <laughs> yeah right um i've been doing a lot of sort of political stuff for uh the curb uh which is uh, andrew pierce's website based out of perth because he lets me sort of write whatever sort of pops out of my head like every month i give him a couple articles and sometimes it's like oh i saw this movie and sometimes it's like classism in the australian film industry is a problem and we need to stamp it out um which, andrew you know, very big fan of andrew yeah love here. that dude very good guy um, yeah, you should get him in for this. He'd have some, uh, some interesting observations. Look, this is the first time that someone's called out a future guest in their own episode. So I think that why not? Why yeah. not? Andrew, uh, we'll be reaching out. Hopefully you're hearing this on the show. And if you're not, <laughs> you'll see it in a tweet. Um, excellent. Excellent. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I like, I'm, I'm political. I think, uh, particularly at this, uh, this stage in our, in our history as, as human beings and as Australians, if you're not political, you're not paying attention. Yes. Um, you know, right now it's uh, 36 degrees and the country's on fire and we're going <laughs> to sit around talking about all the president's men. We're going to go back to uh, 1976, yeah, uh, actually um, portraying 1972 ish. Yeah. Um, but you know, at a time when presidential malfeasance was surprising, um, <laughs> 
Because I, I watched the movie again last night and then I jumped on YouTube because the documentary All the President's Men Revisited, Yes, uh, um, that's on there. So Which I'm, is also on the uh, also on the Blu-ray as well if you get the Warner Brothers Blu-ray. It's terrific. Yeah, I still don't have it on Blu-ray. But So I, I was sort of, you know, sort of deeply entrenched in sort of All the President's Men over the past sort of 24 hours and it just occurred to me, it's like... What Nixon pulled wouldn't even write a hashtag today, man. Like this, this is nothing. Like uh, you know, <laughs> like I'm so glad Trump you finally is- said that. You said because I've been saying to a few people on the show, it kind of feels Nixon shit. Kind of feels quaint, yeah, in like, the modern context. Like, who, who gives a shit, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, Trump just some, Republi- some Republicans at the time would have said that too. Yeah, uh, you know, Trump just assassinated an, I- an Iranian general, um, and we're about to go to war. Um, so, like you know, the, the the Watergate burglary is kind of like small potatoes. Right? Small potatoes, yeah. but also it, it the Watergate and all the presidents men, the whole shebang, like harkens from a time when party politics weren't quite so tribal. Because um, mm. Bob Woodward, uh, who Redford plays, was a Republican, absolutely, and a military veteran, a naval veteran. Um, and Bernstein, Carl Bernstein, was a, a classic sort of shaggy-haired, lip-chain-smoking liberal, um, as I am, <laughs> uh, apart from the smoking, I've quit. Um, and the fact that those two guys could come together and sort of you know, blow this story open because, A, they were journalists and that was their calling and their profession. Uh, and it's what they did, you know, defined by their jobs. And B, because it was the right thing to do. Yes. Because, you know, as a journalist, particularly as a political journalist, your job is to hold power to account. And... There are so many people that are involved as Republicans who became sources. Yeah, absolutely. Who who looked at morality above party allegiance. Yeah. And, and that, I think in the modern context, that has shifted. Yeah, well, you're looking at the, the Trump impeachment and so many uh, House Republicans just going, oh, no, I will, I will not find him guilty. I, I will not look at the evidence. I will vote along party lines. And, and that's it. That's... A, that's it. Well, those people are betraying the the democratic process, right? Okay, the 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 republic is at risk because people have decided that their party is more important than their country, and more important than their conscience. So, and it's not something that necessarily only happens in America. Because no, in Australia, in Australia, as a an example, Travis says that today we're recording is the fourth of January. You guys are going to be hearing that a little bit after that, but currently, Australia- if the world is still like going. <laughs> If the internet's still a thing <laughs> in the wasteland. If, if this just doesn't go off into the ether, uh, the, there, there was a, a, a viral clip on an Australian morning show from a few weeks ago where it had a, uh, an Australian celebrity, uh, an Australian sort of celebrity presenter. Her name's Gretel Colleen. She's sort of famously in Australia did our Big Brother show, but yeah. she's she's been a comic and a host and a very accomplished personality for many years. Done radio, etc. Very, very, and, and, and an occasional commentator got called into an Australian morning show. Is on with a right wing pundit, and the topic du jour is: Is Scott Morrison Australia's prime minister? Wrong for having a holiday while the entire country is burning. Well, yes. Yes. Yes, he is. That's, <laughs> so, that's so, unequivocal. So, so the question is not requiring an answer at this table because the answer is it's, yes. asked, it's asked and answered. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When most of the country's on fire and you're the leader, don't go on a holiday to a country that's not on fire would probably be my marketing advice. Yeah. Fuck me. Uh... They have a conversation and 
the right wing commentator takes the stance, and and I, I can't begrudge the journalist who's sitting in the middle at the breakfast show because a lot of these breakfast show people often just like uh, try and echo to craft the cantankerous responses. Yeah, yeah. Try and sort of echo whoever's talking. Mm. <laughs> and I get a call and response. Call and response guy. Yeah. And this right wing commentator goes on this big tangent about how dare we not allow him to have a holiday? Every Australian is entitled to a holiday, this and that and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, Gretel Colleen turns around and says, I can't believe what both of you people are even saying. The leader of the country is on a holiday while the country is burning. Like as far as solidarity for the impacts of this continually worsening event a leader, a true leader in sort of outside of a political definition of a leader, but a leader would not let that happen. And even as in the Australian political context, if we go back to even like the 1980s, Australian Prime Minister at the time, Bob Hawke, was away on a holiday when there was a massive earthquake in Newcastle, which is a a sort of Sydney working class steel town um, on the east coast of Australia. I grew up about an hour away from it as a kid. And um, and actually went to university there, and um, there was a massive, like, colossal earthquake that completely fucked up the entire town. And this is a town that had been mined too, so it had cataclysmic impacts to the yeah. town. <laughs> and at that moment, within hours, both the premier, the premier of the state at the time, and the prime minister had flown into Newcastle to be on the ground with troops and were on the ground with the public trying to figure out what was going to happen next. And that was within hours and both holidays that, that these men were on were cancelled. Well, that's the fucking job, right? I mean, even going further back, okay, because we're a Commonwealth country, uh, for better or worse, uh, Queen Elizabeth stayed in London during the Blitz. Yep. Okay, bombs are fucking falling. <laughs> she was there. Uh, she didn't hold a hose, mate. She wasn't in a control centre, but she was there. Because if you're going to be a leader, that is not just a practical or pragmatic position, that is a symbolic position. Yes. And the the the, the optics on being on a beach in fucking Hawaii <laughs> when Australia's but, on fire. But, but, but outside of that, it's... So we can sort of unequivocally say why well, it's a bad decision. And I think even him himself and his people would go, okay, in retrospect, it was a really bad decision. I don't but see then, how retrospect is required. No, no, it's not, it's not, it's not, but even retrospect from just like a week ago. But yeah. I'm just saying this political pundit on the right was like, was so firmly on the side of that mm. that it seems like baffling. Like he was on that side for that side's sake rather than going, the country's on fire. Feel five million hectares, fire. Yeah, well, it, it, is, it is blind ideological tribalism. It is uh, it is a variation on my country, right or wrong. Yes. Um, and we're seeing that uh, if you spend a lot of time online, which I do when i got to stop. Um, <laughs> so there, there's conspiracy theory talking points going around now that uh, the reason the country's on fire is because uh, the Greens, and the Greens here is used to encompass like the, the political party, the Australian Greens, but also anyone who is an environmentalist, who is uh, ecologically uh-huh. active, so on and so forth, uh, have been preventing... Uh, local uh, government level kind of uh, authorities uh, from con- doing controlled burns to prevent uh, fuel buildup, and that is why the entire country is on fire. Putting aside the fact that um, the Greens don't hold many positions in local government at all, 
Uh, they don't make any decisions for rural fire services um, of locals. Uh, yeah. no. Nothing like that. Um, you might get some greenies, um, some misguided, I, I agree, misguided greenies protesting uh, backburns because they think that it's endangering wildlife and they're not seeing the big picture. That is just sort of knee-jerk. It's a conservation effort. Yeah, but it's a knee-jerk conservation effort, uh, which doesn't look at the bigger picture. Well, lives are in danger. And this oh, is no, sorry. I, yeah. I know. To clarify... The back burning is a conservation effort. Yes, absolutely. The back burning is a conservation. <laughs> the back burning is the conservation. Yeah. And it's so funny that in the last episode, for folks who've listened to episode four with Mel Matheson, Mel and I both talked about that being currently fostered by Uber drivers, that theory. <laughs> yeah. Well, now it's out there. It's everywhere. It's like, this is the Greens' fault. And the reasoning I've heard is it's because the Greens hold the balance of power in the crossbench, but also we shouldn't hold the federal government to account or failure of emergency management because that happens at the state level. So how is it that the Greens crossbench, which is federal, is influencing local decisions, but the emergency response is a state like it's it's all it's just a jumble, okay? It is just weird fucking talking points and designed to make sure that people don't have to for a second entertain changing their minds or holding their own side to account. It's as simple as that. And what is excellent about this film as a nexus... Thank God you brought it back to the movie. <laughs> what, what, what is excellent about this film as a nexus, I think, reinforces exactly what you're saying, which is, number one, there are many wonderful examples in this huge morality play where people went against their party allegiances or where they'd voted previously to look at what was morally right and correct. Mm. And... Also, Watergate is a is a. I almost want to call it like a sociological tipping point in many ways because it's a, it's a time where conspiracy theories were omnipresent in America from really the the death of JFK. But this is one of those ones where, it's like the case study that says there was a conspiracy and it was verified. And whenever you yeah. have a conspiracy that is verified, it is both reassuring because you see the investigative efforts that help illuminate that particular situation. And it also is scary because it actually validates crazy people and conspiracies. There are deeper conspiracy theories about all the president's men and, uh, and the Watergate scandal. And the one I was reading about just this morning on my way here is that it was a CIA operation to topple Nixon. Um, and deep throat (laughs) was actually, uh, Woodward's contacts in military intelligence, like the uh, Deep Throat as a character is a Gestalt character. Yes. Um, and it was uh, naval intelligence feeding information to former Navy man Woodward uh, in order to, to topple Nixon as a president. Uh, even though, like, you know, it's incontrovertible that, that Nixon was just <laughs> guilty as fuck and, like, that, that happened, you know, like the, the Watergate break in absolutely happened. Uh, but that—that's the conspiracy theory I was reading this morning, which oh. is like, oh, that's a—that's an interesting one. Like, it a- strikes me as like unnecessary. <laughs> I love that this show is going to devolve into um, conspiracy fan fiction as we go along. Oh god, oh god. Travis and I know how to play this game. We're going to watch this minute together, mm-hmm. and then we're going to come back and talk to you guys about it. Car 727, car 727, open door at the Watergate office building. Possible burglary, see the security guard. Are you sure you want us? Uh, 517 is closer and they're in uniform. They're getting gas, you take it.
Unit one to unit two. Unit one to unit two. What? We're home. So much fucking happens right then in that minute. Ah, it is so interesting. It is. I love how prosaic it all is, and how unflashy and unsentimental. Um, I love the you know the tape over the the door bolt is just be- beautiful. You know that simple sort of mechanical sort of process yeah. of burglary. I like the fact that the guys doing the burglary are just they look like they're middle, a bunch of suits, middle management guys. Um, yeah. I love the Serpico looking cops taking the call. You know, like proper seventies American <laughs> plainclothes cops. Uh, the framed picture of JFK on the wall uh, to tell us where we're at. Like you get so much information and so quickly sketched. Yes. Um, and there's, there is an assumption of knowledge on the part of the viewer. Uh, you got to remember how contemporary the film was to oh, the actual and, events. And omnipresent mm-hmm. at the time that it was released in 76. Yeah. People didn't need detail. Yeah. Right now we feel like it's an artistic choice. Mm. As in all, oh, sorry, it is literally an artistic it is, choice, it but it's like the motivation for said artistic choice, I think is part of the reason why it makes it feel so timeless. Mm. So really quickly, I mentioned in the last episode, but I want to mention it to you because um, this movie is going to be fun for anyone playing along because you're going to be able to dive through some of the greatest internet research that you could ever hope for. And we're going to hopefully bring it up on every episode. But I did bring this up last episode, but I just want to bring it up. That man who is standing in that frame as we kick off the fifth minute of this film is security guard for the Watergate building. His name is Frank Wills. Yeah, the actual guy. Playing himself. Yeah. I knew Travis would know this. I knew Travis would know this. He's he's the kind of guy. Amazing. Isn't that a just fun before we talk about anything else, because there's some great actors that pop up in this minute that I'm gonna we're gonna dive in together, but isn't that just a fucking amazing touch? That is, that is. And we've seen that before. Um there's a few films around where where uh actors have oh real people have played themselves, have mm-hmm. acted as themselves. Um I think because I wanted to touch on this uh, in terms of like contemporaneity of, 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 of factual-based films. Um, I think in Zero Dark Thirty, there's mm. a bit of that. Catherine Bigelow's film about the, the assassination of, of uh, Osama Bin Which, Laden. Which, thanks to the Scott Z. Burns incredible film, The Report, starring Adam Driver, just shows you that it's basically CIA propaganda. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that is, that's always the risk when you're making a film so close to actual events. It's Fuck like yeah. the fog of war is a thing. Mm-hmm. And you don't have the, the benefit of hindsight. You don't have the benefit of sort of an, an, an eagle eye view. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have the benefit of as many points of view on, on historical events as you may want or, or, or may be des- desirable. Um, so it's kind of amazing that all the president's men stands up as well as it does. Unbelievable. Although there has been um, criticisms uh, probably starting around the mid-90s onwards, but uh, people kind of turned on Bob Woodward as a writer mm-hmm. and the way he would report stuff and how he would um, treat his sources and use anonymous sources and stuff like that. And that line has been drawn back to all the president's men and how that treats the Watergate break-in and, and the... Uh, impeachment of Nixon and Nixon's eventual uh, resignation and so on and so forth. So there is a bit of that, but All the President's Men is such a classic now yes. that we kind of ignore it a little bit because it's such a good film. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, with any aging writer, as we're both going to experience ourselves... Um, oh, no, Death by Misadventure. <laughs> i got that pencil in already. Um Yeah, like people can reflect on it, but I would argue even, you know, his re- recent book, just as a as a as a person who can craft a story and get a story out of a source, Woodward is still a great writer. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, and, and I think in this, 
uh, you know, you see with the collaboration, it's the, the multiple personalities of and, and, and the infrastructure of a Washington Post newspaper with all of the incredible different structures you've got there. It's like as he's learning, you know, they're fact-checking constantly. And and, mm. and ultimately the whole Mark Felt of it all, um, of Deep Throat, <laughs> um, and uh, that, that I, I think it kind of does end up. But I want to touch back on what you said. It, it fucking fascinates me and it's just absolutely incredible that the proximity with which this film is made to the events, almost being produced and constructed and thought about and planned while the events are happening. Well, absolutely, because Redford approached um, Woodward, Woodward and said, yeah. "Like, you know, I, I want to make the film." And uh, you know, the uh, the in the book itself, there's reference to um, they didn't give one of their their sources a heads up because they had to get the outline for the book, which was going to result from the reporting uh, yes. <laughs> in the next day. So they they just fucked off and left this guy to dangle. Um, and yeah, like I, it's interesting that the idea that there would be a book and then a film influenced, like the book influenced the reporting. The idea of the book, the idea of the, the book was sort of looming in the future. To summarize yep. and, and everything. And, and then the idea that the, the film, the idea that Redford would make the film influence the writing of the book. And, and yeah, now 40 odd years later, how do we feel about that? The idea that um, reportage can be shaped by possible... I'm not sure if payoffs is the right word, but yeah, I think um, I think future these, future publication. And, I think these guys and, and, and media opportunities. I have less of a. I, I I genuinely think it's like. I think these guys were so embedded in the in the reporting of the day to day that by the time whether it's a Redford or another character or you know whether it's Redford and a chorus of other people, it's like this needs to be compiled into a compendium of something yeah. to account for. It's historical significance. And so I think these guys are going to be influenced on that in any event. I, I'm, a, not, I'm not hanging the target on, on Woodward and Bernstein here specifically, but um, do you think this, so the reporting and, and the book and, and the resultant film, which we're talking about, does this represent a change point culturally, politically, and, and journalistically? Yeah, I, I think it I think it absolutely does. I think it blurs the lines, and this is I'm glad we're sort of talking about it early. It really does blur the lines for me in what a dramatization is in the Hollywood mainstream context, as in the the very construction of like construction and replication of the Watergate offices, the fact that we're talking about uh, Frank Wills, the fact that Redford is grooming these guys to say once you guys have a manuscript whatever shape or form that mm. that takes and you need to compile this together whether he directly influenced the production of the book or not it's like that entanglement so early like the next time that you see that level of entanglement and then and then that prescience and then the fact that it stands up is kind of the insider in 1999 yeah. like you see you see Michael Mann having a relationship with Lowell Bergman knowing what's happening in the 60 minutes thing is writing the scripts in secret with Eric Roth um, because they can't say anything because it's all off the record yeah. and 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 they're f afraid of being litigated against. And then the film is being produced like literally with that same sort of ethos of close proximity and then it happens. Um, and then obviously the one that we just talked about, which is Zero Dark Thirty. Which uh, is a lot more uh, hashtag problematic. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> very problematic. I was actually texting... Uh, Maria Lewis, friend of this show and friend of One Eight Minute Productions, and Trav and I last night, and she's like, really liked the report, but she's like, but I really, I'll, I'll still love Zero Dark Thirty. I don't care as you're, a film. You're allowed to, yeah. You're allowed, like, you, and you should like films which are perhaps counter, or at least not 
entirely congruent with your political point of view. Otherwise, you're gonna. I still you're gonna like, get very bored. You know. I still like the triumph of the will. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. That uh, was a joke. I like Red Dawn. You know? <laughs> the, it's the, great. The, it's great. Um, so, but uh, I think uh, what we also understand now is that the the popular film will be the the, the record of note. Yes. Um, and you see that recently. Even in, as an entry point, right? Yeah. It's like, what do I know about this? Uh, nothing. Oh, there's a movie about it. Well, let's jump in that. And let's a lot of movie. people will stop at the movie. Oh, I know that now. And yes. not understand that some stuff has been conflated and characters have been combined and and and, and, and yeah, some conversations have been fictionalized and stuff like that. And some, but what's also weird, and we're seeing it very much in the streaming context, less mm. in the cinematic context at the moment, is if you are sitting at home watching watching Netflix and you're watching a historical show, which we've mentioned now a couple of times, the crown people are Google, like you are seeing epic strikes in Google traffic of people researching historical events and looking Mm. for articles about the historical events that are portrayed in that because of the ease with which they can do that to go, is this fact? So that inquisition, that's that's, that inquisition is good. And I, I was thinking more of stuff like uh, biopics. So we, you yes. know, we we had Bohemian Rhapsody recently, um, yeah. and I'm a big Queen fan, and that is such a self-serving hagiography, <laughs> which elides away all of the the sex and drugs that the rest of the band partook in, because the band, the surviving members of the band, uh, produ- oh, apart from the bass, there's no libel laws on your dead. <laughs> I'm good, man. I'll stand by this. I've read all the biographies, um, but yeah, because no, I meant that. Freddie can't come back. Freddie can't come back. Freddie can't yeah. argue. No. And go, ah, uh, remember that night? Yeah. You were also doing some pretty gnarly when shit. You were snorting co- cocaine <laughs> off a midget's head. <laughs> you frizzy haired psycho. <laughs> and I yeah, I love Queen, but you know, you watch that movie and it's like, this is really not not a lot of this happened. Like mm. no, all the most of this happened, but a lot of key details have been alighted away to to present a certain um myth. Which is now kind of set in stone. Yes. Because, you know, if you love Queen, you might go and see that movie and go like, Kid with the Big Teeth did a good job and wow, that Wembley Stadium gig is amazing. And that's, you know, you, and you go home. Yes. Um, and um, how did we get from Watergate to, to Queen? You, uh, we, <laughs> we, we got there from your observations about how no frills and how seemingly unglamorous this mm. is and historically, what is historically problematic or not about this close proximity and relationship with all go. the producers. There we go. Um, so yeah, like, you know, when you're crafting a film, this is a chance to, to, uh, about historical events. This is an opportunity. If you were inclined to take it, to put a spin on historical events, Ooh, yeah. which people may not look further than, and I'm not accusing all the president's men of this. I'm just stating this as a, a factor. To we consider. need to have this conversation. Yeah. And on this show, we're going to have mm. it. But it, it was because a- there's one particular scene later in the movie, which in this film, and and we'll sort of, I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to ruin the conversation for that particular minute or minutes that are surrounding it. But there's a, a sequence in the film where um, uh, Carl Bernstein's character goes to collect um, collect information from a Miami lawyer. Yeah, um, and he has to get past the and he has to get past yep. the secretary, and that is the most glaringly fictionalized moment of the film. Goddamn Nora Ephron, right? And Nora Ephron influence, <laughs> which we will get to. We're going to get to it on this show. Sorry, Nora. We so, love you. We love you, Nora. Um, 
but I think these are conversations that have to be had. Yeah. And, no. and, and the scrutiny and the difference with the historically based film is that um, what's kind of good is in all the president's minutes, what is standing up is there is kind of that, there is a lack of amalgamation of certain characters and people that they, they, they tend to stick to the script. Mm. And one of the amazing things about this, an Oscar winning script and written by the great William Goldman, one of the great, if, if not the greatest is top three. Uh, greatest screenwriters have ever lived. Um, William Goldman kept going back and looking at a narrower and narrower focus of time in order to tell and allude to hu huge themes that this overarching tale had. So it's like, I can't tell this whole story. I can't take it all the way to Nixon's resignation. How do we, how do we craft it back and make it the procedure and the grind and the gruel of taking you to the tipping point and then not having to mention anything? For that? I know it's, it's a lot further uh, uh, down the track for the podcast, but the last 10 minutes of this film are masterful. But it, from a contemporary point of view, it the impact relies on you <clears throat> knowing the history. Yes. Uh, which is an interesting uh, point to think about in relationship to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which also relies on you understanding the history. And there were complaints from various stupid quarters. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, where did we get that complaint from? Uh, yep, stupid quarters. Okay, yep, go on. <laughs> that people without that historical context, you know, were coming out of the film, going, well, what, did, what did that even mean? That's well, we don't read a fucking book, we... Um, so I wonder if <laughs> Travis Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, read a fucking book. So I wonder if people coming to all the president's men, perhaps wanting to participate in, in the listening to this podcast, um, and not understand the historical context, are going to mm. have a similar reaction to the events of the film. Cause it's like, well, what did that mean? I don't understand. I don't understand, uh, what happened with, with Nixon's resignation and his subsequent pardoning which we should talk about um uh, in the same way that we're like well you know the manson family didn't kill anyone in, in once once upon a time in hollywood so i don't understand why this final 10 minutes is cathartic because for me it's not and it's like well again you know read a book uh, or you know just just learn stuff yeah <laughs> learn stuff travis johnson and and, and, in, and in this show this show we're hoping to learn some stuff mm. and and but I don't think that that diminishes it for me, and maybe that's going to be oh, interesting. I don't think it diminishes the film. I'm no. just wondering if there is a, a barrier for entry and how easy that yeah. is to to jump over for I think, I think contemporary that's, audiences. That's the scratch. There are going to be contemporary audiences who have this thing that when they see a movie like this and they're enthralled, and I genuinely think that this movie tonally and technically enthralls you. Oh, it is incredible. Watching it again yesterday, I was just jaw on the floor. Like It would be about five, six years since I last watched it. And for a movie which is largely people talking and typing, like it never lets go of your throat. No. Like it is just stunning. And the framing and the pacing and quiet conversations and trying to extract information um, and, and with consent, ultimately, mm. about what they can share, can't share, what can be on the record, can't be on the record. And in the modern context, everything's on the record. For the record. Um, uh, I... I think that for for anyone who, and it's, I would shudder to think that wouldn't even have a cursory understanding of history, but if you if you watch this and you might have that healthy skepticism of a film watcher that nothing is really real and everything's yeah. over dramatic, <laughs> um, 
I think that All the President's Men is the kind of film that would throw you into a, a colossal rabbit hole of like, what the hell is that? You know, I, I would hope so. And, and, I would and, hope and the that, intellectual curiosity exists in the viewer to go like, well, the stuff I didn't know, I need to find out. Yeah, about. I need to find out. Okay, cool. So um, do I need to buy All the President's Men and then read The Final Days and then read everything else that follows? Yes, it, we need to. Um, you should. You we, should. Absolutely. Look, there's a couple of things that happen in this minute. You know, learn shit. Travis Johnson 2020, I think, was a quote that just happened a couple of seconds ago. So I'm going to get there are a couple of people, famous people. Firstly, Dominic Chianese and F. Murray Abraham are, are some of the actors in this minute. We're going to get to them in just a second. But there is a third actor in this minute that I want to mention. And I never thought that I would say this, but the arresting officer number two yeah. is played by an actor by the name of Anthony Manio. He was in Highlander and Weekend at Bernie's and All the President's Men. <laughs> Where's his star <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard? <laughs> he did play Boisterous Drunk in Highlander. <laughs> I've, I've seen research. And at Weekend in Bernie's, he played a superintendent character. Um, I know who he was in Highlander. I have a mental image. <laughs> so, Boisterous Drunk, Weekend at Bernie's, All the President's Men, the holy trinity of movies. Anthony Manio is right oh at the center God. of that. Unbelievable. So as we see this. I thought I'd been ambushed then. <laughs> so you're like, you don't know who this guy is? I'm like, no, I really don't. What, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you may have remembered him. I just wanted to mention him because everyone in this moment, and Travis pointed out these kind of Serpico, plain clothes, looking cops. Mm. F. Murray Abram, like right at the beginning of his career, you know, this is 1976 that this film is made. People in a modern context are known from like things like the Grand Budapest Hotel, Inside Lewin Davis. Armadeus. Uh, uh, but the big ones, he yeah. does two in a row. He's in uh, 1983, he's in Scarface. And yep. then 1984, he plays Salieri in Amadeus, which wins Best Picture. Um, he's an unbelievable and enduring actor. And in this moment, he's just like two seconds and he's excellent. He's mm. just phenomenal. So I love small details in any investigative or crime film. And in that, this is Car 727, Car 517 of officers who were in police uniforms. Yeah. It's just getting gas. And what's so wonderful is the 77, we're in plain clothes. We've just been out of whatever. That very fact in this little coordinated moments, we hear unit one to unit two. We later hear in the next minute, I think it's base one to unit one. And it's unclear to me whether unit two is base one or whether there's actually multiple units here. Um, I think there might be. Um, but these white collar crooks in here, they continue going about their business only because their little base one, unit one guy who's about to trigger them to the fact that these plainclothes have just run into the building are plainclothes. So yeah. there's activity, but it's not... It's not the cops are here. It's not the cops are here. Yeah, it's like someone's here. Someone's here. But they so, don't, they're not wearing uniform. And we don't even get to that moment yet, but it's just that great little detail and it's like... It's that screenwriting 101 detail that Bill Goldman knows. Like, if I just underscore this with we're in plain clothes, it's like, oh, this is why these guys keep going about yeah. their very obvious business. Now, they're all businessmen wearing dodgy gloves, like suits and gloves. It, looks, it, it is jarring when you see it, yes, right? Yes. It, it's really unusual. And you think it's setting up this kind of subtle kind of class thing because the plain clothes cops look look schlubby and working class yes. and the burglars are in business suits, suits and they look like middle management motherfuckers 
I, I've always got an eye out for class issues in cinema, so maybe <laughs> I'm just reading too much into this. But to me, it was like, that's fucking interesting, man. Yeah. Because the guys, the cops who They're are the authorities, guys. don't look like authority figures. And the guys doing the break-in do. And of course, we dramatically and, and narratively, we later find out that, you know, they're from the White House, effectively. So they are an instrument of power. Like, that's and that's what, a great little detail. And what's so great about these Watergate burglars is that they are all blue-collar guys. Yeah. They're all blue-collar guys in oversized, shitty suits. <laughs> and they all are meant to be that. And and most famously, I think, uh, and we, we, we talk, people talk about him lovingly, um, f- and I think lovingly forever as Uncle Junior. Dominic Chianese, um <laughs> is... Uncle Junior from The Sopranos. He's also in The Godfather Part Two, one of the greatest films ever made. Um, and you know, nineteen seventy four to seventy six, he plays Johnny Ola, who is the offsider to Hyman Roth. Um, in in The Godfather Part Two, he's also in End Justice for All. He was an accomplished singer later on in his life as well. Um, but he's just again playing a complete bit role as um one of the people who's breaking into the Watergate building as a Watergate robber, and he's just in. There? He's just there, and he's out. Bounce bounces later on. Couple of minutes in there. It's 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 completely done. Um, I love those seventies uh, early early career bit parts. One of my favorites is uh, Death Wish, which is not as good a film as All the President's Men, but <laughs> you get Jeff Goldblum as one of the rapists. One of the rapists at the beginning, and Christopher Guest is one of the cops. Yes, and that's the whole series of. If you've ever watched Miami Vice, the Michael Mann oh series, oh my god, yeah, <laughs> the, it, it, there is there are so many, so so many. Uh, just a litany of like first roles ever. Mm. Bruce Willis, Liam Neeson. You know, it's just unbelievable. Like the list goes on. Um, I, I, I love everything that is understated and quiet about this and how it's wrong. Mm. And, and I think, you know, without going too much further, but just sort of reflecting on what we've seen so far, it's, there's a, there's a residential building directly across from here. And these suits are so ill-equipped. These suits are so ill-equipped in this moment that they're like, they're going in with a torch in a building. It's making it extremely obvious. That something dodgy's going something on. Something dodgy's well, going the, on. the entire sequence is what's wrong with this picture. Um, step by step by step. step. And it's in the writing. It's also in the staging that, uh, that Pakula does. Are we saying Pakula or Pakula on this one? Uh, let's say Pakula because Pakula. I think I'm hearing Pakula a lot in I'm my research. Um, and, but... Isn't he a fucking outstanding filmmaker? Yeah, um, you know, one of these... Him and Goldman working together is kind of incredible because I think of them both as craftsmen, okay? They're, mm. they're not fancy. They're not trying to impress you. They're not going for the flourish. Um, but they want the tone. Tone and, and precision. T- and telling detail yes. is what they're all about. And, you know, the script in conjunction with, with the way Pakula stages things, how he dresses his sets, how he moves his camera or doesn't move his camera... Um, how he dresses his his, his cast, um, you know the the minimal dialogue. Oh, that's that's the writing, but it basically encourages you to sit there and kind of just pick away at the details. Okay, so what's with the gloves? And oh, you have the flashlight. And oh, that you know, obviously we cut in on the tape on the door, but that that to me is like that shot of of the tape where the security guard finds it cute cues you to sort of look at every other shot and go like, oh, okay, what, what's wrong in this shot? Okay, what, yes. what's out of place here? And and it builds and builds and builds. And and that sets you up to approach the entire film the same way. It puts you in that investigative mode, that, that very inquisitive and inquisitorial viewing mode. So And the film never 
presents anything out of place that it doesn't intend to. Like it is so tightly fucking constructed <laughs> yes. that anything you see which is out of place isn't a mistake. It's there. It's designed. It's there to grate you. Yeah, to grate you <laughs> and to set you up for revelations later in the narrative. Like yes. it's so good. It it It's unbelievable. It's mm. a film that strikes me all the time. Mm. And what I haven't said as much is during One Heat Minute, folks would say, how many times are you watching Heat? And I'd say, well, a lot, but not the whole movie. Mm. With you and I talking, I usually watch the preceding minutes to what we're going to talk about and sometimes the following minutes because there's some good stuff that we're going to start to flourish into yeah. and mine. And so I was watching this revolving 10 to 20 minutes of every minute of heat as I was doing <laughs> it. Um, but I wasn't casually watching that. I wasn't casually watching the whole film again because I was focused. But what I found myself doing was like, well, let's find some other movies to watch as white noise while I'm doing other things, while I'm prepping, while I'm, you know, pottering around the house, etc. And I threw on all the president's men very early on. And I would say outside of heat in the last couple of years, it's the film I've watched the most. Mm. And this beginning has an allure. It's like invisible hooks that you, you don't realize are being put in you until literally the first phone call from Woodward. Yeah. And what I've really wanted to mention as well, and I think you just said it so perfectly, is like, what is that massive detail? What is that massive thing? And it was kind of a bit of a revelation in the second minute of the film is, you know, we've seen Nixon right at the beginning. Yeah. It's like we've seen the bad guy. We've seen the villain. And that scene which seems so innocuous and archival, boring, slow, people would call it. It's like, so what's happening? What's happening? It's kind of like the train coming in, in heat, and you realize that, oh, no, wait, this is an entire locomotive to this idea of LA as a transient space. Okay. And seeing that villain at the beginning, it's like it's just going to grate on you forever. And he, then he's just omnipresent after that. Yeah. He's larger than life in those first couple of moments. And then we get to this and it's like, how is this big, happy, jovial, celebrated political figure now down in the depths? And literally we watch the great Frank Wills walk down a car, walk down a little... A little yeah, well, it's a descent, isn't it? It's a little a, descent. Yeah, into the underworld. And now literally the underworld. And we're here now in this beautiful residential thing looking across at these guys. But I love their hair. I love the hair of the guys in the suits because it's shitty. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, like, they're all balding and they got yeah, it's and it's, and bad it's, haircuts. It's frizzy. You can tell that yeah. the, the, the real suits are a little bit more clean cut. Mm. That's what I love about the detail of these guys. They're, 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 they dress in suits to be inconspicuous, but they are very conspicuous. Well, it's cultural coding, isn't it? You yes. Know, like you can dress up as someone from a subculture or a, another culture. You shouldn't. You don't don't dress up as people <laughs> from other cultures, folks. Um, and anyone from within that subculture or that that, that class or that culture or, or that nationality can take one look and go, uh-uh, uh-uh, no. Um, and, and what uh, Pakula does so, so cleverly here is he sets it up in such a way that even if you're outside of the class being depicted, um, in this case, you know, the, the suits who aren't suits who are burglars who are working class guys, you know, you as a viewer can look at that and go like, uh-uh. There's something wrong there. Yeah. Immediately. I mean, it's like looking at vanilla ice all the time. Yeah. <laughs> There's something wrong. <laughs> I didn't know we'd get to vanilla ice. We've gone to Weekend at Bernie's. We've gone to Highlander and, and Villanelle. Qu yeah, and Queen. And, and Queen. Yeah, and Michael Mann, but we knew that was inevitable with you on the mic. Yeah, look. 
there are some things that are going to happen, Travis, and they're inevitable. I know, buddy. They're inevitable. But my question to you is, you know, you and I are sort of asterisk journalists, film journalists for the most part. You definitely more so than me. What is it about this film as a journalistic text do you think can still stand up or is it completely just a document of its time? Is there any, is it, what, what is it about this thing that seems I, to resonate? Because it, I really wanted to get onto this. It deeply resonates with me all the time. I think it is fascinating to look at all the president's men uh, in whatever form, uh, book or film, uh, and compare it to the current dominant state of journalism yes. and realize what we've lost. Because uh, this, this is journalism as heroism. So the, the book and the film both sort of came around uh, as part of the new journalism movement. Um, the film in particular forefronts uh, Woodward and Bernstein as the protagonists, the heroes. Okay, it's not. There's no journalistic remove in the narrative of the film, but it depicts journalistic remove in mm. the, the the narrative of the reportage. And new journalism is basically guys like Tom Wolfe and, and Truman Capote and... Uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson is probably the most famous one. Um, and uh, Executioner's Song. Why am I blanking? Uh, I'm blanking. Norman. Uh, oh, Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer, who would put themselves in the story to some to greater or lesser degree, who, who would uh, narrativize and not fictionalize, but very much uh, turn the, the story into a story. Um but there was still for for Woodward and Bernstein in particular, and and uh, Wolf and all that. There was uh, a drive to be accurate, um, to check the facts, to 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 really nail it down, and and to make sure that when you put something on the record, you know the record would stand up to scrutiny, uh, and also. News took time. Like these guys are racing deadlines and stuff like that. You see that um, in the film. But it's not a in the book. They reference it quite a bit, mm. just as a contrast. And we're we're going to do this in the show is talk a little bit about the book and, and the film. Is there are some of the stories that were racing to a deadline because they wanted to open it up, and there were things that were tied into that, other features, other things that they wanted to talk about that they they park. Yeah, they, they go. This is for the Sunday edition. They might be racing for a, a Thursday night deadline for a Friday paper, and they're like, "No, this is Sunday because we don't have these, you know, five or six facts in order. We don't have those things." In the very context of like, this is not ready yet. Yeah. Was such it's so comforting in the reading, and also it's so comforting in the swagger of Jason Robards' delectable Ben Bradley. God, I love Jason Robards in fucking, this fucking film. I fucking love him. And uh, but but that very uh, that idea of like, you don't have it. Yeah. Like and editorial <laughs> oversight and standards, and we've seen that you know largely being lost in, yes. in the public discourse now. Um, you know the race to be first, the race to like get the most strident hot takes up online, and you know we we deal with this mainly in film journalism, but it's also you, know, you see it in in broader journalism uh, where it should not be. The idea that you have to keep hammering the audience with with outrage and 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 politicized hot takes in order to keep them focus to keep them clicking through to mm. keep them angry and to to uh divide and and uh and politicize people i guess i'm i'm repeating myself here i've, I'm, I've there's a thread i'm chasing and i haven't <laughs> quite got it and but it's but it's so, it's so rare like we mentioned wolf mailer um uh, uh thompson personalities uh, in the news and then you've get and, and i think 
we're at the zenith of news personality journalism now where it's about personality first and opinion and then sort of factoid yeah. sec second. And there's some other, there's some really great journalists like Matt Taibbi is out there um, is a guy you can actually listen to. He's been on the Joe Rogan experience and I'll link, make sure I link him in the bio here. But like there's people like Matt Taibbi who used to write these long and languid uh, investigative journalistic pieces for like Rolling Stone and things like that. Mm. And it, it, it's, it can be done and there is a place for it, but the blurred lines of like that corporate entertainment thing, that's, that's, that's like 20 years later, that becomes the norm. Well, the internet has killed, um, not killed, but badly crippled journalism in that it is very, very difficult to monetize long form, thoughtful, investigative journalism today. Yes. Because people, and if we figure it out, if we figure it out, we're all over it. <laughs> I'm Woodward. He's bursting. <laughs> I got it. No, it's the other way around. I swear to God. Um, because people don't want to pay for content. Can we both smoke? I just really want to start yeah, just, again. Just, In Australia, yeah. if my lungs are fucked because of these Might fires, as well. Anyway. I mean, today, like, fuck it. Why not? Uh, but but yeah. we're not going to flick our fucking butts like those lunatics. <laughs> right now- We can't afford to. Yeah. No, right now in Australia, this is a good thing where you think about a revenue raising thing. It is now, if you flick a cigarette butt out of a car in Australia right now, especially in New South Wales, it is an $11,000 fine. In Victoria, they just shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Victorian of yeah. them, isn't it? Um, but yeah, like no one can monetize uh, content anymore apart from advertising um, because no one wants to pay for content, okay? You see something behind a, a paywall and you're like, well, fuck that. I'm, ne I'm not going to read it. Read it. I don't, can anyone hook me up uh, like, because I don't want to pay for content ever? Mm. Um, which means that journalism is very hard to monetize apart from through advertising, which and advertising online means clicks. And the way you get clicks is through outrage and through constant content. Mm. So waiting a week even a week to put together a good 800 words on whatever the, you know, the event du jour is, is unthinkable in that economic context. Okay. It is completely anathema. Don't wait a week. No, 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 no. Get fucking 50 words up today and then 50 words up in an hour and then uh, a redaction because you <laughs> fucked up and then uh, grab some Yahoo off the street and get a fucking Vox Pop. Uh, who gives a shit who he was? Uh, we had a Vox Pop today on uh, 2GB and it turned out to be the son of the guy who manhandled that woman that Morrison seized and shook her hand. And he had a point of view that these uh, ferals had disgraced the prime minister by yelling at him. But he had a dog in the game. <laughs> like he had a dog in the race because his father was the guy who was shepherding Morrison through the sea. So, okay. So, like, th this is what passes for journalism now. And it is quick. Don't worry about being inaccurate because you can always print a redaction. Um, and you can only have to do that if you get called on it anyway. So, who gives a fuck? And that is what has killed journalism. Mm. It's certainly what has killed people's trust in journalism. Yes. And it is what has empowered people to simply accept the writing which uh, underpins or reinforces their own political ideologies as truth and ignore the rest because journalism has been devalued. Um, so in a weird way, All the President's Men is quite comforting because it harkens from a time when journalism was important. Uh, when uh, journalistic integrity crossed party boundaries. Yes. Um, as a, a going straight back to where I said that Woodward was a Republican and he still broke this fucking story. Um, and with it, the help of many Republicans. With, with the help of many Republicans. And he's not just a lone whistleblower. He wasn't a whistleblower, he's a reporter. Um, so, yeah, like 
watching all the presidents men for me is simultaneously comforting and 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 uh, enraging because the landscape has changed to such a degree and the amount the degree of malfeasance to which we are now inured to caring about uh, is so beyond what is depicted in, in in the historical record and in the film and in the book that you know you, you kind of you look at how we got from there to here and sometimes I despair man like it is, like it's rough out there right now. You know? <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I would just say what we can do together is in this podcast is and 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 is continue to examine and try and scratch. <laughs> Speaking of scratching, my dog has just walked into the studio right now after many instructions not to. Hey, come here, you old duck. Sit down. Stop bothering Travis. That dog loves me. Sit down. Sit down, man. Um, what we can definitely say is, and I think that that's part of the desire to, for me to to talk about this film in this way. It is, it is about looking at this film's very unique position in history and journalism and politics and cinema in the world and sort of joining the dots because the transition of all of those things have evolved so immensely in the time between its release and the time that we're now talking about it. And, but, but I don't think it's lessons should be unlearnt or not be heeded in that there's such a profound morality in this movie outside of the journalism. Mm. It's like that the facts of the matter and the corruption of those words and, you know, you know, Vox Pops and things like that. The facts of the matter is more care the level of care that they took to make this film, yeah. more care is required in just everything. More care with a source, more care with the morality of a situation, more care with making sure things are right. And we're going to come to those minutes and we're going to come to those moments and we're going to come to those scenes and sequences and lines of dialogue in this very film where it's like, if we were wrong, we will quit. Yeah. Being and, that... It's not just, you know, oh, we'll, we'll just keep charging on. Saying, if we're wrong, we're out. Yeah. If we're wrong, we're out. Like if, yeah. if, we, if we've gotten to this point, this zenith, and, and they and they reach these uh, what I love about this movie is these guys continue to reach peaks it's it's like this exploratory peaks where they don't realize that oh no you're not at the peak you're only at like one step yeah. there's Everest <laughs> over there you're on a hill bro like you need to keep going and they reach these continual peaks and as they continue to discover it's like they get to these new zenith points and they think that they're at the top and they go if we've come this far and we're wrong we're out and I, and there's such a respect for that for, for that courage to do that rather than to be fired or rather than to become out or rather than yeah. a redaction. It's like, if we've come to this far and we've joined all the dots and then we're so far off the mark, then we've got to go. We've got to be out of here. So it's, it's just one of those really fascinating texts that continues to come back. And, but I don't want you to despair. I don't want people when they watch this movie to despair. I want, Oh, them. that could just be me and my, <laughs> my, my dark no. black Irish fucking mood. <laughs> but it's, it's, I think that, Despair is definitely it's definitely a it can be a byproduct, but I think that what this film gives me is hope. It's that there were a bunch of people who, regardless of their political ideals, looked at the morality of a situation and looked at the amorality of the people who were around them, the middle management suits who were around them, said, "No, this is all fine, keep going," and chose to speak out mm -hmm. because they wanted to hold people to account to the law and they wanted to hold people account to what was right. And these guys dedicated their lives and had no social lives and, <laughs> and, you know, dedicated so much of their time to this story. And, and, and then these filmmakers dedicated so much of their time to tell it right. Um, so I think that that's, 
I think despair is going to be part of it. <laughs> I think despair is going to continue to be part of it. But hopefully not on this show. Hopefully not. We're having fun. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you look at uh, the film uh, in, in terms and you know, in contrast to you know our current bleak uh, era, uh, one thing I would ask people to take away from it is look at how technology and media and politics and economics all feed off each other. Mm. It is all interconnected. You, know, you pull one thread and 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 it leads you to to other places and that is more true today than it was when the film was made more yes. true than it was when the events the film depicts occurred uh but have a think about how all these different elements interrelate and how changes in technology and distribution and economic uh modeling not economic modeling but uh economic uh possibilities within media have led us to where we are today here we are, economic modelling, emissions of coke snorting and crazy tizzy head queen members, Anthony Manio's Highlander, Weekend at Bernie's and all the president's men, the triumvirate of movies, the connections are all there. This has Follow been, the money. This has been all the president's <laughs> Anthony Manio did. He followed that money straight to Highlander and Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> Bless him, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of the show, Travis Johnson, everyone. Thanks for having me, man. Like the Washington Post coverage of Watergate, this podcast is a result of a collaborative effort. Thank you so much to Holly McBride once again for doing our introductory narration. Thank you very much once again to my guest, Travis Johnson. Now, if you're looking out for Travis, you can find him on Twitter at Celluloid Whiskey. That's one word, at Celluloid Whiskey. And you can find all of his stuff, a repository of everything that he does, at celluloidandwhiskey.com, which will lead you down all the garden paths of him. If you haven't already, please subscribe to One Heat Minute Productions and you'll get not only all the President's Minutes but Increment Vice and some of our very special uh, throwback bonus episodes to the One Heat Minute podcast. Um, If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, share, review. We love everything you've got there. And if you've got any spare bucks, jump onto Patreon and sponsor us if you can for less than a cup of coffee. We'll catch you very soon.